Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Paramount's fast-moving story of two tough guys and a beautiful girl who gives them the fight of their lives. It's a battle of the sexes starring Brian Donlevy, the great McGinty back in politics and tougher than ever. Alan Ladd, a killer in more ways than one, pitting their male wits and strength against Little Miss Dynamite herself, Veronica Lake. Get out of my way, you cheap crook. The Glass Key, story of big town politics and underworld intrigue, of murder cold-bloodedly plotted to swing an election, and a battle to the death between Alan Ladd and William Bendix, that terrific guy you saw as Faxi Randall in Wake Island. What? It's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Glass Key from 1942. The studio is Paramount Pictures. The release date was October 23rd, 1942. The running time, 85 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guy gives it three and a half out of four stars. He writes, fast-moving remake of the 1935 film. With ward healer Brian Donnelly accused of murder and henchman Alan Ladd bailing him out. Veronica Lake is fine as the mysterious love interest, and William Bendix is effective as the brutal bodyguard. Akira Kurosawa claims this film was the inspiration for Yojimbo. Now, The Glass Key was one film I had been hoping would be released on DVD for years after first seeing it at the Stanford Theater in Palo Alto, California in the early 2000s. It was finally released in a three-film TCM box set called Dark Crimes in 2012, and it also included the films The Blue Dahlia and Phantom Lady. Let's get into the main cast. You have Alan Ladd, who plays Ed Beaumont. Ladd's career began in the 1930s, but always in uncredited roles. He really didn't get noticed until the 40s, and was one of the few blonde-haired actors to become a star, as most leading men were dark-haired. His first major starring role came in This Gun for Hire, which also starred Veronica Lake. This was prior to The Glass Key. And just as his career was beginning to take off, he joined the military in 1943 during World War II. However, his stomach issues led to a medical discharge, and he returned to acting in 1944. Now, I will eventually get into more parts of Ladd's career when I cover his later films, but sadly, he died in 1964 at the young age of 50 after an accidental overdose of alcohol, sleeping pills, and tranquilizers after attempting to recover from a knee injury. Ladd always had trouble sleeping, and though he didn't take a lethal dose of those pills, that combination proved fatal. Veronica Lake plays Janet Henry, Now, I already covered Lake's early career in the Sullivan's Travels episode, and that film made her a star, and like Ladd, was one of the few blonde actresses of the era with her iconic long, blonde, flowing hair. 
It really made her unique and actually less dated for today's audience compared to the other actresses of the era and their hairstyles. After Sullivan's Travels, she starred in This Gun for Hire prior to The Glass Key. Brian Donlevy plays Paul Madvig. Donlevy was definitely the most veteran actor of the cast, with his career beginning on Broadway in the 1920s. He broke into Hollywood in 1935 for the film Barbary Coast and appeared in a number of B-pictures through the rest of the 30s. His first starring role in a major film was directed and written by the terrific Preston Sturges for The Great McGinty in 1940. We will cover that film at some point. His notable roles from then until The Glass Key were The Remarkable Andrew, which is about President Andrew Jackson, The Two Yanks in Trinidad, A Gentleman After Dark, The Great Man's Lady, and Wake Island. The director, Stuart Heisler. Heisler started his career as a motion picture editor in 1921 and then moved to directing in 1936. The Glass Key would be Heisler's fifth film and by far his most notable at this point in his early directing career. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So it's based on a Dashiell Hammett novel, which was published in 1931. This was the second film adaptation based on the novel. The first was released in 1935, as Leonard Maltin said, and starred George Raft, Edward Arnold, and Claire Dodd. Amazingly, Hammett only released five novels, though he wrote a number of short stories. The other four novels being Red Harvest, The Dane Cruise, The Maltese Falcon, and The Thin Man. Interestingly enough, Alan Ladd was set to star in an adaptation of Red Harvest instead of The Glass Key. However, those plans were scrapped and the film was never made, and instead Ladd starred in The Glass Key. It was the second of seven films to pair Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake together. The first, as mentioned, was the excellent This Gun for Hire, which also came out in 1942. The undeniable chemistry the two shared in the first film led to an immediate repairing for The Glass Key, and they are arguably the most attractive on-screen couple in cinema history. Also, one of the reasons Lake was such a great fit for Ladd, well, is due to her tiny stature, as she was only 4 foot 11. Ladd could appear much taller than Lake, even though he was only listed at around 5 foot 6. Now, recent critics of the 2000 film Michael Clayton, starring George Clooney, often view a close similarity in the story with the glass key. So check that out. Okay, let's get into the film. So sadly, there are next to no clips to be found for this film. So it's mostly going to be narration for me on this episode. However, I did find a radio adaptation from 1946 with Alan Ladd, so that should fill some of the audio gaps later that you can hear at the end of this episode. So the film opens, we are introduced to Paul Madvig. That's Brian Donlevy. He's the head of the Voters League, and we hear the spectators at the convention saying different things about him. Like he's the biggest crook in town or that he's incredibly charitable and feeds a thousand hungry people a week. Essentially, he's a cruder version of the political lobbyists of today. He's not as refined, and he's more street tough. Paul mentions something about the Reform Party candidate named Ralph Henry, which is less than flattering. Then all of a sudden, a woman approaches Paul and slaps him in the face. As it turns out, it's the daughter of the candidate he besmirched, and her name is Janet Henry, played by Veronica Lake. Paul's confidant and partner is Ed Beaumont, played by Alan Ladd. Ed is the go-between for Paul and filters out things before people actually come into contact with Paul. After getting smacked by Janet, Paul decides to back the reform candidate. However, Ed thinks it's a crazy idea and won't go down well with the other parties and the gangsters that support him and fund them. But Paul is now smitten with the gorgeous Janet, and he has his mind made up. Because Paul is now backing the reform party for governor, his double-dealing of the past regarding straddling the line of working with gangsters and also honest politicians is going to make things difficult for Paul. For example, mobster Nick Varna, played by Joseph Kalea, 
and his goon Jeff, played by William Bendix. They make it clear they don't appreciate that Nick's club was raided and shut down in an effort to clean up the town, especially since Nick actually paid for protection that Paul approved. Paul makes it clear that Nick is finished in the town when Nick visits Paul's office. And maybe he knew or didn't know, but by doing this, Paul essentially started a war with Nick because of this. By the way, William Bendix was a terrific character actor, and many people remember him for a few notable roles. One was from his radio days as the lead on The Life of Riley. The other role is the ridiculous biopic of the Babe Ruth story where he played Babe Ruth. Paul goes to a dinner at Ralph Henry's house and makes a great impression with Ralph and all of the guests. We then meet Ralph's son, Taylor, played by Richard Denning. He's the black sheep of the family, often getting into trouble with his drinking, gambling, and fighting. Ed and Janet also meet, and immediately you can tell there's a spark between them. Ed can't take his eyes off of Janet. But Janet thinks Paul is a blowhard, and she is more infatuated with the strong, silent type that is Ed. You can already see a potential issue here with the love triangle. So while the Henrys have a troubled child, Paul has the same issue with his sister Opal, played by Bonita Granville. If you didn't know Granville, she played an early film version of Nancy Drew. Opal runs into Ed and asks for some money, all of that he has on him. She can't tell him what it's for, just that she needs it and not to tell Paul. Ed hands over the cash and Opal drives away. Ed follows her in a cab to see if she's in trouble. Well, as it turns out, the two problem children, Taylor and Opal, are an item, unbeknownst to their families. The money that Opal received from Ed was given to Taylor so he could pay off a portion of his gambling debts to Nick Varna. It's 500 bucks. Ed shows up to Taylor's apartment and finds Opal and Taylor together and is less than pleased. Ed takes Opal home, though she's not happy about it. Taylor tries to stop Ed, but Ed simply kicks Taylor in the shin, which is hilarious, and escorts Opal out. Opal is furious, and when she arrives back home, Paul also finds out that she's sealing Taylor, which goes against his wishes. Opal, of course, is in love, and she's rebelling. Ed leaves the bickering siblings and goes home. When Ed arrives home, he receives a desperate phone call from Opal saying that Paul is going to Taylor's apartment to kill him. Ed doesn't believe Paul would do something so foolish and rushes to find out. Ed finds Taylor dead in the street outside of his parents' home. Ed then confronts Paul to find out what happened. Paul says that he talked to Ralph Henry about what's going on, but never saw Taylor. When Ed tells Paul that he found Taylor dead, Paul almost has no reaction and is completely apathetic to the news. The next scene is a rainy day in the funeral of Taylor. After the funeral, Nick Varna approaches Ralph and Janet to inform him that the word on the street is that Paul killed Taylor and that he should join ranks with Nick instead. But Ralph isn't interested. Janet then sees Opal walking to her car and approaches her. Janet tells Opal what she just heard from Varna that Paul may have killed Taylor. Ed arrives to say to ignore the rumors, but Opal just drives away crying. Ed visits a district attorney played by Donald McBride. He's assigned to the case, and he gives Ed an anonymous note which reads, If Paul Madvig didn't kill Taylor Henry, how did his best friend happen to find the body? As we find out, the DA has very little power of his own since he was put into position by Paul. And then, of course, Varna will try to strong-arm the DA as well. So while the DA might be wishy-washy, the newspapers are going after Paul, due to the leaks coming from Varna, who's trying to get even with Paul about shutting down his club. The news is also putting a strain on Ed and Paul's relationship, as Ed feels Paul isn't taking things seriously enough. Ed goes back to his apartment and gets a visit from Janet, who asks him to find the killer of her brother. She received the exact same note that the DA gave Ed earlier. Ed, though attracted to Janet, doesn't trust her at all. Paul then arrives at Ed's apartment, and Janet hides in the bedroom. It seems that Ed has decided to pack up and leave town for good. Ed says that he needs to run a few errands, and Paul comes with him. Janet can then leave the apartment without being noticed. 
Ed and Paul decide to have a farewell drink at a bar. They don't even start their drinks before Ed punches Paul after arguing about Paul throwing everything away because he's smitten with Janet. Ed leaves the bar, and the two seem finished for good. Ed then visits Varna after Varna hears about the split between Ed and Paul. Varna offers Ed $20,000 and a gambling club if Ed gives a newspaper report all the dirt on Paul, like how he runs the city through shady deals and, of course, details about killing Taylor. However, Ed just wants to get information out of Varna about his next moves and tells Varna to shove it. Ed is then knocked out by Jeff and taken to a hideout and then repeatedly beaten by Jeff every time he tries to leave the room that he's locked up in. Ed eventually wakes up alone while Jeff and another goon eat dinner in another room. Ed quickly finds some old newspapers and then takes the mattress he was lying on and rips it open and stuffs it with newspaper. He then lights the mattress on fire with a lighter he had in his pocket. When Jeff and his buddy come back and try to stamp out the fire, Ed escapes briefly but is thrown back into the room by Jeff. Jeff then returns to stamp out the fire again. Ed then breaks a tiny window and jumps out, crashing into another apartment below. He's then taken to the hospital to treat his badly beaten face and body. Ed, who is delirious but still coherent enough to tell the doctors to get a hold of Paul. So while Ed recovers in the hospital, Paul goes to work to find out who is responsible. Opal visits Ed, who still believes that her brother killed Taylor, since the newspapers continue to print stories saying so. However, that's because Varna is buying off the papers. As Ed continues to recover, he gets a few visitors, along with a very attractive nurse, played by Frances Gifford. Are you awake? There's a lady here to see you. What kind of a lady? It's Janet Henry. Tell her to go away. Can't do that. She knows you're better. When are we going to be alone again? Never. If I can help it. I suppose I'll have to see her. No wonder people beat you up. Come in, please. Paul says you're feeling much better, Mr. Beaumont. They say I'll be able to sit up by the first of the year. Paul says you'll be out in a week. Sounds like you've been seeing a lot of Paul. Let's don't talk about Paul. What do we talk about? You comfortable here? More or less. No fun. No fun. Hasn't your uh, nurse been treating you well? Not as well as I'd like. Poor boy. If I'd known you were being neglected, I would have come sooner. What's this I heard about coming sooner? I, I said if I had known he was recovering so rapidly, I would have come sooner. <laughs> Boy, I figured Ed's lucky for you to come at all. As it turns out, Janet and Paul are now engaged. Ed isn't thrilled, but he keeps a poker face about the news. Ed also finds out that Opal's heading up to the country after being invited by one of those owners of the paper who continues to publish stories planted by Varna. Ed decides to leave the hospital against doctor's orders in order to find out what is going on at that country house. When Ed arrives, he finds Opal with Varna and his gang, along with a newspaper publisher who's been bought off by Varna. Also, the publisher's wife happens to be there, too. As it turns out, Opal has been telling the paper the story that Varna initially wanted Ed to tell and that she's getting the same payout. She's so mad at her brother, she'd sell him out. But Ed has a plan to get Paul out of this jam. But what is it? Well, you're just going to have to watch the film, and the final 25 minutes will answer all of your questions, including if Paul really did kill Taylor. And get ready for all those plot twists. Now, this is a very well-written, it's a very quick film noir with two of the biggest on-screen duos of their era, 
that being Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd, and they're at the top of their game. So if you're into classic mysteries, I think you'll enjoy this one. All right, some fun facts. So even though the studio loved the chemistry that Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake had from their first film, This Gun for Hire, Paulette Goddard was the original choice for the Janet role. When Goddard had to drop out, Patricia Morrison was then selected. But of course, she was later replaced by Veronica Lake for the aforementioned reason she had chemistry with Alan Ladd. Now, the always aloof Alan Ladd, who was a former laborer, preferred the friendship of the film crew than the other actors and studio executives. However, he was still able to form lasting friendships with a few of his co-stars, especially William Bendix. Bendix accidentally cold-cocked Ladd during a particularly vicious fight scene in the film. Ladd was so taken aback by the sincerity of Bendix's apologies that they formed an immediate and unlikely friendship. They even purchased homes across the street from one another at one point. Now, in Dasho Hammett's original novel, Ed's name is actually Ned. <laughs> All right, we have a special guest, and it's Lindsay, who had never seen this movie before, so we get her fresh take on that. And after we talk to Lindsay, I'm going to give you, as I told you before, the old-time radio version from 1946 of The Glass Key from the Screen Guild Radio Theater, and that starred Alan Ladd, Marjorie Reynolds, and Ward Bond. So enjoy that, and I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Lindsay. Welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks for having me on the show again. Hi, everybody. So here's what we're going to do. So Lindsay hasn't seen many classic films. So this was kind of fun because she's definitely never seen The Glass Key before. I don't even think you've seen any of those actors or actresses before on film, have you? No, I haven't actually, no. Uh, so what were your first impressions watching a film like this? And how often do you go back and watch like classic black and white films? I guess I'll answer the second question first. Yeah. I don't watch a lot of older classic films, which is kind of sad because I know there are many, many good ones. I have two favorites that I watch every year and they also happen to be holiday films and I adore them both. What are they? Uh, one is Christmas in Connecticut. Uh, and why is that? Uh, well, I am from Connecticut mm -hmm. and it reminds me very much of my grandparents because that is a film we used to watch on Christmas Eve together, which I really appreciate and I have fond memories of. And the other one is Holiday Inn. There you go. Also takes place in Connecticut. Also a film I used to watch with my grandparents. So I just have a lot of love for those two films. And clearly they are from roughly the same era as this. So I do own Christmas in Connecticut. I love Barbara Stanwyck. So we'll be talking about that in the next... She's amazing. Yeah. That's an amazing comedy for that time yeah. too. Very women's lib at the time yeah. and, and very entertaining. I would say my first impressions... Of, of The Glass Key. Of The Glass Key. I really thought it was interesting. There are times it was hard to follow. There's a lot going on. It's kind of this political drama. And I'm pretty good with most films even complicated ones the, the jumping around from from parts to parts and kind of just paying attention to what's going on but this one in a few instances it was hard to get exactly what was happening when it was happening uh and there were a couple times i did get a little bit confused about what was occurring in a particular scene but uh i thought it was interesting in that there was so much kind of mobstery and almost violent influence in this one like that's not what i think of when i think of you know the 1940s and um it definitely took some turns that i didn't expect in that way um it felt like i was watching a really old goodfellas <laughs> yeah exactly and so that's whereas today they're called lobbyists back then they were basically racketeers you know, you know there was a lot of racketeering back then with 
the political offices. And so we were talking about like the this the district attorney especially was like the worst DA ever because he's basically up for sale for everything and he was just kind of a a drunk that they put in office so that that he could do whatever political influence could could sway him. He did seem like yeah. he did everybody's bidding, but that might have been one of the other elements of the film that was interesting and also confusing at the same time was it was hard to tell who was on the side of whom just the way that it felt like things flip-flopped. Right. This person is is found murdered and this person could be the one that did it or this mm-hmm. person could be there was a, a point in the beginning where I was very confused about the one character, Taylor, mm-hmm. that was found murdered, I thought that his sister was actually his girlfriend. Right. <laughs> because I didn't feel that was very well explained. She's, you know, kind of right before the, the scene where he's found uh, on the sidewalk, unresponsive. Yeah. Um, they're having a bit of an argument in uh, what turns out to be their parents' house. I thought it was just her dad's house about him having some degenerate gambling, gambling problems. problems yep. And he was asking her, shaking her down for money. I thought it was his girlfriend. No. Um, but no, they turned out to be brother and sister. And then before you know it, um, you realize that the sister mm-hmm. of one of the the other main characters, the, the Paul Madvig character, yep. was being shaken down by him also for money. Right. So I got really confused for a minute there. And I'm like, wait a minute, he's... Wait a minute. There's. I actually thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, oh wow, he's a real playboy. He's yeah. like, he's playing both these chicks. But, uh, but one was his sister. So well, it didn't help that Veronica Lake and Benita Granville kind of looked similar. Like they were both blondes. They both kind of had similar features. So maybe that was easy to confuse. I don't know. No, it wasn't their looks so much. Although I would see their looks were different for this time. You you brought sure. that up before we watched the film. But I I was just again. One of the toughest things for me when I watch classic films mm-hmm. is that I see this, I feel like I see the story jumps yeah. a bit. And unlike the films of today, where many of them do a really solid job buttoning up all the parts and pieces, so there's really like no jagged edges left. Sometimes when I see films from this era, I don't know if it's because they were trying to keep them to a certain time or something Definitely. like that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's a lot of loose ends left. Mm-hmm. And then it can be confusing to understand what's happening. You feel like you missed an important piece of something. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, wait a minute, maybe that piece just actually didn't happen. I didn't miss it. It just didn't happen. So here's another thing. A lot of the screenwriters back then were adapting from actual real authors. That doesn't really happen as much today. I mean, granted, there are books that are adapted into films. Don't get me wrong. But back then, Dashiell Hammett was a famous writer. He wrote The Maltese Falcon. He wrote all that stuff. So so it's possible that maybe they really edited what the original script was. And by doing that, your chunks are left out. They also didn't... The budgets for these films weren't huge. So maybe they didn't have you know time to really you know draw out these plots. I almost think that the political angle is almost like a MacGuffin. Because it really... You're trying to figure out who actually killed Taylor, and that's really the heart of this story. Is like who really she did it. It's a who done it. It does get confusing though, yeah. because there are a couple of people that you think could have done it, and maybe that does end up being a cool element of the film. Is that it could have been a lot of different people, and right. you should be kept guessing 
until the end. And the truth is, when you get to the end, you are you are surprised. That's mm-hmm. not what I thought it was going to be. I was pretty convinced it was one person, yeah. and then it ends up being Don't somebody spoil else. It, so I'm yeah. not going to yeah. do the spoiler. I, oh, yeah. I refuse to do that. I I, I wouldn't say. Um, this is a film I wouldn't watch again. Maybe yeah. I would watch it and again, and this time I would try to catch some of those mm-hmm. little nuanced things. Even even really weird things, like right in the beginning, again, uh, Paul Madvig, who's sort of like the one of the, the lead characters here. Yeah. He's... The he's Brian Dunleavy yeah, character. Yeah, the Brian Dunleavy character. He's wearing a wedding ring, and I'm, he's trying to get the interest of Janet Henry, played by Veronica Lake. And I'm looking at you during the film, and I'm like, but... He's wearing a wedding ring. Yeah. Why is he trying to like again? Is this a classic mobster? Like he's cheating on his wife. But he's not you know? married. But that's the thing. Why is he wearing the? There's just these weird little nuance things. I'm maybe I'm too much of a details person, but I no. saw that and I'm like, I'm so confused. And then I'm like, oh, maybe he's just like Tony Soprano or all the other mobsters where they've always got a side piece. You know, maybe I, she was supposed to be the side piece, but that's not what it was. That's a great call, but I, I continuity back then. Most people weren't picking up this stuff, and if they did, they never could have assumed that these films were going to... After they were out of the theater, you'd never see these films again. Nobody could have predicted television, cable, and eventually home video. That's, you know, this is... Movies over 80 years old now at this point. So, But you're right. There is a continuity issue there, and that was interesting. You picked it up. How did you feel about the um, the chemistry between Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake? Did you like that? It was interesting. Like, one of the things that always sticks out in films like this not so much the two i described that i've watched a lot in the past but the sometimes the sexual tension between these characters is i'm surprised by it because i think about modern women now granted i know that this is however many decades before and it was different but it's it's almost like this ridiculous amount of obviousness like women almost feels like they're pushing themselves on these men. There were a lot of moments in here where I'm like, gosh, she's just throwing herself but at this guy. that's the femme fatale, though, too. That's a yeah, film noir. which I get that, but it just seems like in the real world, if I were to observe something happening on that scale in that way, I'd be like really thinking like, this one, like, she's she's trouble, man. She's over the top. And yes, there's the femme fatale angle, yeah. but it sometimes it seems like it's extra. Yeah. It's just really extra. And I don't know how these men in these films don't see through it because it's so ridiculously extra. But then again, you don't go to clubs where all the, like, in real life, where rich guys are probably getting... These type of these type of women are going after power and stuff like that, too. Yes, it's just Seductive. not my scene. It's not your scene. Nope. So, and again, this wouldn't be your scene either. This whole pol- political power. Yeah, she thing. seemed like she was playing a bunch of angles. She mm. did not seem like a genuine person. At first, I thought she might have been, but it became very clear early that there was a disingenuineness to her that bugged me. Well, again, I film noir is one of my favorite genres. I've seen hundreds of films, and so I'm used to the femme fatale. This is a common trope. But you not seeing those, it's it's different, and also it's of the time, and it's a movie. <laughs> like it's not I supposed mean, to. Yeah, it just it just brought a lot of eye rolls. I think for me, where sure. I was like, oh god. Yeah. You but, know, on a few of the more 
exaggerated yeah. points in time. She's playing all these dudes, and I'm like, they, can they really not tell? But again, she's beautiful, and guys are dumb when it yeah, comes to beauty. Yeah, but these dudes are they're standing in the doorway. They're, like, watching the stuff happen. Like, they're that stupid. I don't think men are that stupid. I think they could, I mean, you know, it just... You'd be surprised. A, <laughs> maybe I would be. Yeah. I, I just feel like there are moments where... Like, if you're asking how do I feel sure. about the chemistry, it's there, but I almost felt like he almost seemed like he, he had a leg up on her all the time. So then when you get towards the end, again, no spoiler alerts, but there's kind of a weird scene at the end where yeah. I'm like, really? <laughs> Come on, dude. You know, like I was, I don't know, I was kind of pulling for uh, for Ed Beaumont over here yeah. and feeling like he got a bit hoodwinked there. That's a good word. I like good word. I like it. Okay, so lastly, um, this is actually a pretty violent film. The way that Ed kind of gets beaten by the William Bendix character. How did you feel about that? I mean, that was pretty violent for 1942. It was. That was probably one of the greater surprises yeah. because, again, going back to some of the classic like mm-hmm. Scorsese type oh, yeah. mobster esque films, all the ones he was we probably know, influenced by those. Yeah, have those scenes. Um, this one for that era did feel pretty violent. Violent, um, pretty intense. They definitely played that up a lot. That's probably the biggest surprise for me of the film was that that really, to me, felt like those early, you know, mob guy beat beat the truth out of them, whether it is or it isn't. Um, And that was more intense than I expected. So that part held my attention pretty well uh and it was interesting i I haven't seen a lot from this era that uh that felt like that it felt like 40s scorsese yeah and then i also like this film works better because it's in black and white the use of the shadows and the lighting and obviously that beating scene i think is more powerful if it was in black and white like it's darker oh yeah and the you know the there's a part where you see the uh alan ladd Mm -hmm. character um set fire yeah, to a mattress. mattress. He had yep. this clever, I guess it was just his escape plot, really. Yeah. And he Desperation. had this, yeah, this good idea. And uh, I didn't know what he was going to, in fact, when I saw him steal the razor blade, I thought he was going to hurt one of the guys right. with it. I did not see that his plan was to cut open a mattress and basically create a, a ruse uh, so that the guys who were holding him captive would like come running and see this fire and then be like, Oh shit! Fire! Yeah. And we then put he the would fire? kind we, of like yeah, get yeah. out, mm-hmm. I, or, or attempt to get out. I didn't see that coming, so that was a bit of a of a surprise. That scene was probably my favorite scene, and as difficult yeah. as it was to watch because it's kind of harsh. And again, I'm a big sort of mobster yeah. Scorsese type fan, so I think that was probably the best scene in the film. To be honest, so if you're ever held hostage, folks, try to steal a match or a lighter and cut open a mattress. Set it ablaze. It yeah. worked. It worked here. So would you recommend this or was this one like a one and done for you? No, I I mean, I think it's worth watching. I think it's worth watching. I, I probably would watch it again and listen for clues more carefully. I just feel like I missed some stuff mm-hmm. that I shouldn't have missed, but I don't really know what that was. But now that I see how it all kind of ended up, and obviously I'm not going to talk about what sure. happened at the end here. I feel like there might be more. Clues. There might be more. There might be more clues, and well, maybe I missed then. it. You know, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I didn't think I did, but yeah. that doesn't mean I didn't. 
So if you were to watch this, would it maybe be more focused? It's tough time sometimes watching things at home. So if they were in like a theater, like a classic theater that repeated this, because this was the first time when I first saw it, I was in the Stanford Theater. So I was totally focused on the film. Yeah, too, I so. need no distractions. Yeah. There really can't be any distractions, I think, to try to catch every little nuanced bit of this. But what's funny is it's like I not, left you alone during the movie. No, I know. <laughs> but not all not all classic films that I've watched get confusing. Sure. Like, again, I quoted my two most favorite But those are comedies. Yeah. They are comedies, and there really wasn't anything confusing about them. But no. this one, I was like, wait, what? what? Yeah, what happened? What's happening here? But some of these old plots do get convoluted. Yeah, and I don't know if it's something, like you said, the da- the adaptation from the book, mm-hmm. the getting cut on the editing Time. floor, yep. the idea that people didn't think these would like live in perpetuity. No, it was like, it's a one and done in a the theater, and but that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really great point that I didn't even think of, but when you brought that up earlier, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could see where they were like, whatever, and a extra lot of people, wedding ring, who cares? And, yeah, and a lot of people were just like, I just want to see Alan Ladd and, and Veronica Lake on screen. Yeah. So this, the plot was kind of like, eh. With the, you know, yeah. you, you were seeing superstars at the time. I guess, you know, the other thing is, I felt like, I felt like the Alan Ladd character was more developed. Yeah. And even though Veronica Lake, you know, she's pretty to look at, I kind of didn't feel There's like no her depth. character was that well developed. No. I did think the Ed Beaumont character was. again, Alan Ladd, was mm-hmm. really well developed. Like that—that that was the most interesting character mm-hmm. in the entire film. I also think that if this movie was made today, the Opal character, so Benita Grant, that might have been even a more well developed character than what it was. I'd hope so. Yeah. I mean, that she was the sister of Paul Madvey, right, and. She had a relationship of sorts with, with Taylor, yeah, yeah, and also with Ed Beaumont. That's I right. think that would have been more interesting. interesting. Yeah, I the way Ed protected Opal and was kind of like going after her and like pulling her from this situation, almost like it was his sister, giving her money, but yeah, yeah, but it didn't feel like it was his sister. It felt more like that was the love interest, maybe. So in a way, I'm like. She seemed like the better one anyway. Yeah. I almost feel like the good one got away. But he couldn't have done that to his best friend. He couldn't date his best friend's sister. But why not? I don't know. He wanted to steal his best friend's girlfriend. Why not take the sister? At least he's not going to date his own sister. So when Lindsay writes The Glass Key Part 2, that this is where we're going with I'm this. Already pen- I'm penning it already. Folks. All right. I just think the Opal character... If she had been ending up with Ed, mm-hmm. I don't know. I really would have liked to see where that went. There you go. Yeah. My Our, new ending. The new ending. See, this is why we have Lindsay on. Yay. Thank you for doing this, Lindsay. Oh, thank you for having me. Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild Players. The Lady Esther Screen Guild play tonight, The Glass Key. The starring players... This is Alan Ladd. This is Marjorie Reynolds. And this is Ward Bond. Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in Paramount Pictures' exciting mystery drama, The Glass Key.
It stars Marjorie Reynolds as Janet, Alan Ladd as Ed, and Ward Bond as Paul. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in The Glass Key. Paul used to say we made a great combination. He had the fists and I had the brains. Not that you could call him dumb. You don't get to be political boss of a state without having something under your hat. The trouble was, when he wanted something, he just grabbed it off and didn't count the cost. And that's what worried me that night. Say, Ed, the uh, new posters just came in. How do you like them? Elect Ralph Henry Governor. Three-color job. Not bad, huh? Paul, are you really going through with that crazy idea? What crazy idea? Throwing him with old man Henry, the whole reform ticket. Why, sure. We're making the deal tonight at dinner at his house. Hey, what's the matter? Don't you like it? No more than I like those socks you're wearing. Huh? What's wrong with them? The clocks. They, uh, they tick too loud. Yeah? I thought they was pretty. Nick Vegas isn't going to like it either. No, ain't that just too bad? You know, they, uh, raided his gambling joint last night. Yeah, I know. I passed the word myself. Nick bought protection. He's going to want it. Yeah, but it just happens that we're cleaning up this town. Paul, he's too big to take the boot from you now. Maybe he's too big to take it laying down, but he'll take it. This is the kiss-off. And after election, you think Henry will play ball? I know he will, Ed. Why, he's practically given me the key to his house. Yeah. Yeah, a glass key. Look out, it don't break off in your hand. <laughs> I know what the score was, of course. Old man Henry had a daughter, Janet Henry. Paul had met her and gone off his nut about her. I'd never seen the dame myself, so that night when Paul was at her place for dinner, I, I dropped in too. Just happened I had to deliver some papers. I sat there and I watched Paul shooting off his mouth and I watched her laughing to herself, laughing at Paul. Then I couldn't take it anymore, so I got up to go. You're going so early? Yeah, I had some things to do. I'll go to the door with you. Mm. Evening, Mr. Henry. Good night, Paul. Good night, Ed. See you in the morning. I'm sorry you're leaving, Mr. Beaumont. I'm sure you must have some interesting stories, too. Lay off, sister. I don't like your technique. Technique? Yeah, you've had enough laughs from the wrong side of the tracks for one night. Oh, I've had enough forever. Mr. Beaumont, I'm sorry for you. Yeah, why? Well, you work for him. You have to be with him every day. How can you stand it? I ought to sock you right in the eye. <gasps> she wasn't the only one in that family who was bothering me right then. She had a brother named was Taylor Henry. No good kid who'd been hitting all the gambling joints for months. I'd seen him lots of times at Nick Vegas's place, and I knew that Nick had his hooks in him. As it wasn't enough by itself, the young punk was running around with Paul's sister, and, well, that's one thing you've got to understand. Paul loved that kid sister of his. Wasn't anything he wouldn't do for her. And I'd been wondering what was going to happen when he found out she'd been going to Taylor Henry's apartment. I uh, didn't have long to wait. Just a few nights later. Hello? Oh, Ed, this is awful. Oh, Ed. Oh, now slow down, kid. What's the matter? Paul found out about Taylor Henry and me. And he's going up to his house. He's going to kill him. Oh, take it easy, Snip. Paul wouldn't be that crazy. Oh, I tell you, he will. He's going to kill him. Oh, Ed, you've got to stop him. Okay, Snip, okay, relax. I'll go right over and head him off. 
kept my promise. I went up to the house, a big house. There wasn't a light. The place was dark. I, I figured everything was under control, so I stepped off the curb to hail a cab, and I saw something laying there in the street. Yeah, something. Taylor Henry, and he was dead. Okay, okay, just a minute. Oh, hello, Ed. Pretty late to be sociable. I was just getting ready to brush my teeth. Come on in. Oh, uh, Paul, did you uh, find Taylor Henry tonight? Oh, so Opal called you, huh? Yeah, yeah. Did you find him? I found his old man. I had a long talk with him. Mm. Wasn't Taylor there? No. Why? Well, he's uh, laying in the gutter outside his house. He's he's dead. Is that so? Didn't you hear what I said? Sure. Well? Well, what? He was killed. You want me to get hysterical about it? What do you want me to do? Should I call the police? Don't they know about it? Wasn't anybody around when I found him. Is it all right for me to say I found him? Why not? Go ahead, use the phone. Okay. You're a big fool, Ed. Well, one of six. Come on, Snip, don't take it so hard. Everybody's got to go to a funeral sometime. Oh, I loved him, Ed. He loved me, I know he did. Sure, maybe he did. But when you get a bad break... Excuse me, Miss Madvig. I'm Janet Henry. May I speak to you for a minute? If you want. It's just that I think you ought to know something I just heard. About what? About Taylor's murder. Come on, let's go, Snip. I beg your pardon. I was talking to Miss Madvig. Funeral's no place to talk about murder. It is, if you just heard Nick Vegas talking to my father. Nick Vegas, huh? What'd he say? He said he's got evidence that would convict someone for Taylor's murder. Who? Who did he say it was? Your brother. Listen, you. Why don't you peddle your scandal to someone who wants to hear it? But, Ed... Come on, let's go, Snip. I don't like the company. Sit down, Ed. Glad to see you. Are you? <laughs> sure. But what brings you to the DA's office? As if you didn't know. What about Taylor Henry? Well, of course, some people think we're kind of slow in cleaning up that murder, but... Yeah, who thinks so? Oh, no one special. It's just, uh... Well, here. Take a look at this. A letter, huh? You know how it is. A lot of cranks around. They always write anonymous letters and... Go on, read it. Well, if... If Paul Madvig didn't kill Taylor Henry, how did his best friend happen to find the body? You said anything about that to Paul? No. Don't. Now, Ed, uh, I'm not taking this letter seriously. It's just that, well, there's a lot of pressure on this case. The papers, the Observer especially. Well, I know Nick Vegas owns the Observer. Matthews owes him 100 grand. Dice. Well, it's... Uh, Let's have it far. What has Nick got? He's coming in tomorrow to... Uh, I mean... Well, Ed, Ed, I, I just can't sit around and... Paul, tell you to, you'll sit, stand, or ride a bicycle. Listen, I'm district attorney of this city and county. I... Of course, if you... If Paul, I... I mean, if there's any reason why I shouldn't... There isn't any reason. And I wouldn't like you to think you are going around thinking there was. I'm going up to see Paul. And if I were you, I'd buy that bicycle. 
Now, look, yeah, just forget about it. I've had the newspapers after me before, and I'm still sitting pretty. Ever uh, tried sitting pretty in an electric chair? Ha! Oh, don't scare me. No, I'm serious, Paul. The observer's hinting about a secret witness. Hot hair. You're wrong. Nick Vegas has promised to give them something. I'll patch up your trouble with him, Paul. He's the one who's spreading all the dirt. I'll patch up nothing with that monkey. He's got to learn that when I say things are closed down, they're closed down. All right, have it your own way, but don't count me in. What? I'm uh, pulling out for New York tonight. Yeah, come in. Hello. Do you mind? Oh, you, huh? What is this, uh, slumming again? You don't like me, do you, Mr. Beaumont? I don't know. I think I do. Hmm, I'm pleased. Why? Why, you're very direct, aren't you? Yeah, why are you so pleased? Well, for some obscure reason, I, I think you're nice. Okay, now let's have a not-so-obscure reason. Well, I, I was hoping you'd help me. Tell me something I want to know. Yeah, what? Did Paul Madvig kill my brother? No. You're sure? After all, you're Paul's best friend, and you found Taylor's body. How did you know it? <laughs> all right, hand it over. What? The letter, come on. Give. Oh, now you're being smart. I knew you had it. But, I, I mean, I don't... I... Sure, exactly like the one Far got some half-witted crackpot. But what if it isn't? I've got to be sure. Please help me. You want to, I... I can tell you do. No. I know why. It's because you're Paul's friend. Now listen, don't get any corny ideas. If I wanted you, it wouldn't make any difference whose friend I was. But you do like me. You just said you did. Sure. Sure, you've got a pretty face, nice manners. But I wouldn't trust you out of this room. You're slumming, and I don't go for it. You think you're too good for me. But, sister, it happens I think I'm too good for you. Now, if you don't mind, I'll answer my phone. Hello? Yeah, speaking. You do? What for? Well, I'm not promising anything. Well, don't be surprised from there. Yeah, that's right. About 15 minutes. Well, Miss Henry, I guess you'd better run along. But aren't you going You to... heard me beat it. I just made a date. I'm glad you're acting sensible, Ed. I'm glad you came over. I'm glad you're glad, Nick. That makes everybody happy. <laughs> you're quite a guy, Ed. That's why I've been thinking about you. I figured you and I could slice some turkey together. If you'd break down and do me a little favor. Yeah, what? You ought to know plenty about Madvig. What's your proposition? Why did Paul bump off young Taylor? Hey, that's a nice desk. Uh, cost very much? Plenty. But you haven't answered my question. You haven't made your proposition. I'll stake you to the finest gambling place in town. I'll let you run it to suit yourself. Give you plenty of protection. Where would you be getting protection? Uh-huh. You're not so hot for putting in with me, are you? It wasn't my idea, so I guess I might... Sit down. Yeah, sure, sure. I'll give you ten grand in cash right now. Ten more on election night if we beat Paul. And the gambling house office still goes. What do I have to do? Give you a story to the observer. How Paul's sister phoned you. How you went up to Taylor's house well, you and... know about that? Sure. Sure, I know everything about that kid. I had to. He owed me so much dough. Say, uh, you didn't knock him off, did you? Don't be funny. Now, look. If you'll talk... Tell me why Paul bumped the kid off. We can go to the D.A. and... Forget it, Nick. Nobody's going to see the D.A. Nobody's going to talk either. 
That's what you think. Hey, Rusty. Jeff. What's up, Nick? You want us, puss? Okay, Ed. If you want it this way, you can well, have it. Thanks. I guess I'll just... Since you! Hey, what do you know? He passed out from one clip. Yeah. So he did. All right, now bring him to. And then clip him again. And keep on clipping him until he talks. The second act of the Lady Esther Screen Guild play will follow in a moment. Now, a word from Lady Esther. So many of you have asked me in your letters why your face shows signs of age sooner than other parts of your body. The answer is simply this. The skin of your face is much finer textured. It's more delicate, more easily damaged by wind and sun, by dirt, by rough or careless treatment. That's why I think it's such a mistake to use beauty creams that must be rubbed in to do their job. You see, rubbing your skin, rubbing and stretching those fine, delicate skin structures may easily do more harm than good. That may surprise you, but it's an important thing to know. Rubbing may stretch the skin, may break down its firm texture. Yes, it can make you look years older than you are. However, millions of women who use Lady Esther four-purpose face cream have no such problems. For this famous cream isn't rubbed in as most other creams are. Being so velvety soft, it doesn't need to be rubbed in. Lady Esther four-purpose face cream is just smoothed on, gently, then wiped off. That's all there is to it. The cream itself does the work, not your fingers. Lady Esther four-purpose face cream thoroughly cleans your skin without rubbing, softens your skin, helps nature refine the pores, and leaves a lovely smooth base for powder all without rubbing, which may break down and damage the delicate skin structures. And if you have an especially dry or sensitive skin, listen. Lady Esther face cream contains one of the most beautifying ingredients known to modern science. A single application often makes your skin look softer, more pliable, and younger looking. Tomorrow, make this simple experiment. Get a jar of Lady Esther four-purpose face cream and prove to yourself that here at last is a face cream you don't have to rub in to bring out the beautiful qualities of your skin. And now, Lady Esther presents the second act of The Glass Key, starring Ward Bond... Marjorie Reynolds, and Alan Ladd. That Jeff weighed over 200 pounds. He had, had fists like hams. He knew how to use them. I, I don't know how many times he clipped me. How many times I got to my feet. Or how many times he clipped me again. The next thing, they had me in a little room somewhere. When I came to, I was stretched out on a cot, and Jeff and Rusty were sitting at the table. They were playing two-handed poker. What do you got, Rusty? Two pair. Mm, that makes four bucks I owe you. <laughs> Lucky's coming through again. <laughs> Ain't that nice? <laughs> we can have some more fun. Can you beat it? He's still trying to get up. <laughs> Deal him, Rusty. Mm. Sweetheart, you shouldn't want to try to get out. 
Remember, we warned you. Take it easy, Jeff. Be right there, Rusty. Deal him out. <laughs> Listen, sweetie pie, you ought to lay down. You don't feel so good. <laughs> Watch out, you'll croak him. You can't croak him. He's tough. <laughs> he likes this, don't you, baby? <laughs> now, ain't that too bad? He's throwed another joke. Let him lay, Jeff. Cards is dealt. Right. Let me say, I'll take two. Two off the top. Say, how long are you going to keep working on him? Now, you know what Nick said. Until he spills the dope on Mavic. Well, he don't show no signs of talking yet. <laughs> Ain't it a shame? I'll have to keep on trying. After a while, a long while, I guess, the bell stopped ringing in my head. I, I managed to get one eye open, and finally I realized I was alone. Rusty and Jeff were out in the kitchen. I could hear them eating, even from there. Of course, they'd locked my door, and there wasn't any window in the room, just the cot and a lot of news, newspapers. That's, that's what gave me the big idea. I, I crumbled them up and piled them by the door, and for once, my cigarette lighter worked on the first try. Pretty soon, I had a nice fire going, and pretty soon, they smelled the smoke. We shouldn't have left him rusty to heal. He's got the place on fire. Grab him, Jeff. I'll handle the fire. Grab him. Where is he? I can't see a thing with the smoke. Oh, he's got to be in here somewhere. He couldn't get out. <coughs> nah, he couldn't. Except through the window. Yeah, it was as simple as that. A nice, clean drop, and I was on my way to the hospital. He's been calling for you, Mr. Madvik, ever since they brought him in. Well, there he goes again. Listen. You have Madvik. Gotta see Madvik. I'm here, Ed. Ed, it's me. It's Paul. Paul. Nick, Nick Vegas. Yeah, gotta stop him. Paul, he's... He's... Oh, he's fainted again. You'll need another transfusion. Well, don't stand here talking. Get going, will you? Oh, of course. Listen, Doc, if this guy dies, I'll turn this joint into a warehouse. Felt fine by the time they let me out of the hospital. Yeah, I felt fine until I saw the Observer. Big, screaming headlines right across the front page. Practically accusing Paul of murder. I knew I had to move fast, so I followed a hunch. That night, I went to Taylor Henry's apartment. I found what I was looking for. A portable typewriter on the desk. And that wasn't all. While I was standing there, the front door opened. So I ducked behind the drapes and waited. What are you doing here? I could ask you the same question, only it happens I know the answer. Yeah, the same as all those other little poison letters. If Paul Madvick didn't kill Taylor Henry, how did his best friend... All right, I wrote those letters. I'm sure Paul killed Taylor, and I mean to prove it. Yeah, what do you think Paul's going to do when I tell him? You're not going to tell him. What good would it do? Besides, you're too fond of him to hurt him. He'll get over it. And there's another reason. I'm asking you not to. Cut it out. Stay on your own side. Oh, what's the matter? Can't you forget Paul for once? Thought we'd settled all that. I told you Paul wouldn't make any difference if I wanted you, but I don't. Now that you know how I feel, let's get out of here. Hi, Ed. Hello, Paul. 
Well, looks like you were right about that rat far. Yeah, get the indictment. Yeah, but don't worry. There ain't a judge in town that'll hold me. Oh, uh, Paul, listen, any judge will hold you if the evidence demands it. Look, you've got to level with me. Haven't I always? Yeah, but what about Taylor Henry? What about him? I ask you first. Oh, what's the matter? You're covering up for somebody or something? Come on, let's have it, Paul. All right, I killed Taylor Henry. Oh. But uh, what happened? I was laying into him about my sister. He got excited and took a poke at me, and I hit him. He fell back and smashed his head on the curb. Oh, why didn't you say so before? You've got a perfect self-defense plea. Well, it's on account of Janet. I want Janet, Henry. I want her more than I ever wanted anything. What chance did I have with her, even if it was an accident? What chance do you think you've got with her now? She doesn't even like you. Now, Ed, look, there's something... I'm telling that... you, Paul, she's been trying to shove you right into an electric chair. She's been writing all those letters... That... Will you shut up? Shut up and get out of here. I'll get out when I finish talking. You'll get out when you're told to. You haven't said anything, I believe. You never will. Now, get out of here, you heel. This is a kiss-off. Okay, Paul. Have it your way. Hello, Ed. Glad to see you. Sit down. Thanks. <laughs> sort of a surprise, you dropping in. That's what you always say. I didn't think you were going to hang around town. I heard you and Paul had split up. Did you? No fooling, Ed. What's on your mind? You. Oh, listen, Father, they, uh, they tell me your wife's folks live in Omaha. Yeah? Uh, you better wire them and say you and the missus are on the way. Is this a rib? Uh-uh, it's a hunk of pretty good advice. Uh, tomorrow, Paul's going to beat that indictment you hung on him, and the first guy he reaches out for will be uh, you. What do you mean he'll beat the ticket? How? Well, first of all, and hang on to this one, it wasn't Paul that killed Taylor Henry. How do you know? Because he told me he did. Now, listen, Ed, that don't add up. Sure it does. It, it adds up swell. If Paul had done it, he'd never told me a long time ago. So I figure he's covering up for somebody, taking the rap. Taking it for somebody extra special. And if you do like I say, we'll make the pinch, and you can postpone that trip to Omaha. Who is it, Ed? Who do we have to bring in? Uh, you better come along far. See for yourself. <laughs> Mr. Farr, Beaumont, this is absurd. It's the middle of the night. Janet is sleeping. I wouldn't think of disturbing her. Mr. Henry, better get her down here. I'll go up and pull her out of bed. This is outrageous. I'll call the police. Don't bother. They're here. See those two cops through the window? Now, will you bring her down or do I have to... Ed, what is it? Okay, Farr, there's your party. Ed, what on earth does all this mean? It means that Farr's got a warrant for your arrest. Arrest? What for? For the murder of your brother, Taylor Henry. Ed. Okay, Farr, better bring her along. I'm sorry, young lady. I'm afraid Just I have... Just a moment, Mr. Farr. I think you'd better prepare another warrant. I am the one you want. Dad. I, I, I don't understand this, Mr. Henry. I killed my son. I was with Paul and Taylor when they were quarreling out in front. I sided with Paul. I told Taylor he was ruining my political career. He struck me. We scuffled. He slipped and hit his head on the curb. Paul and I lifted him up. He was dead. I made Paul promise not to tell. Oh, Dad. Dad! You know, Far, I was getting worried. Afraid we'd have to hang the girl to make the old man crack. Right in here, Cabby. I've got my bags all packed. You can take them down and... Oh. Hello. Oh, Cabby, you can start with those two over there. Uh, yes, sir. 
I got him, sir. Now, what are you doing here? I had to come. Why? Paul said you were leaving. I... I want you to take me with you. No. Oh, look at me, Ed. It's no use pretending. You love me and you know it. And whatever else you say, there's something inside that'll always tell me you're lying. Oh, it's true, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, 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 I guess it is. Oh, then take me with you. No, no. Why not? Paul. No. Paul isn't in this at all. You owe him plenty. Yes, Paul's been fine and I'm very grateful, but, Ed, that's all I could ever give him is gratitude. I'm sorry, sister, that ain't enough. Paul. Now, look, Paul, I... Go on, what are you waiting for, you goon? Are you kidding? What do you want me to do? Go out and get you a preacher? Go on, hurry up before I change my mind. Alan Ladd, Ward Bond, and Marjorie Reynolds for a thrilling half hour. Mr. Myers, the Motion Picture Relief Fund and its country house, both supported largely by this program, are doing such magnificent work that, well, we considered a privilege to appear here with the Lady Esther Screen Guild players. And now, before we tell you about next week's program, here's a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. Thank you, Miss Reynolds. Ladies, I'm sure you would never think of rubbing cream into the delicate skin of your eyelid or beneath the eye, because if you did, the skin might be stretched and injured. It might become inflamed. Now, to some degree, the same thing that happens to your eyelid happens to your face, because the facial skin tissue is finer, more delicate than the rest of your body. And there's the rub. Using thick, sticky cream that has to be rubbed in is not good treatment. Rubbing those fine, delicate skin structures is likely to make your skin look older than you are. And so it is clearly wiser to use a cream that requires no rubbing. Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream. It's so soft, you need only smooth it on gently, then wipe it off. That's all. The cream does the work, not your fingers. Yes, Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream thoroughly cleans your skin without harmful rubbing. Softens your skin helps nature refine the pores, and leaves a lovely, smooth base for powder. It's the only cream you need, the modern scientific cream, which, without rubbing, does all four things your skin needs most for beauty. Try it. You will feel, you will see, how quickly your skin responds to the gentle, beautifying touch of Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream. Next week, the Lady Esther Screen Guild players will present Naughty Marietta. It will star Irene Manning and Alan Jones. Be sure to listen. The Glass Key was produced and directed by Bill Lawrence and was presented through the courtesy of the author, Dashiell Hammett, and Paramount Pictures, producers of To Each His Own, starring Olivia de Havilland and John Lund. It was adapted for radio by Harry Cronman. Alan Ladd is currently being seen in the Paramount picture, OSS. Marjorie Reynolds will soon be seen in the Paramount picture, Monsieur Beaucaire. 
Ward Bond is soon to be seen in the Frank Capra production, It's a Wonderful Life. Music on tonight's program was arranged by Wilbur Hatch and conducted by Lud Gluskin. This is Ted Myers speaking for Lady Esther. Thank you and good night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video and San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday, and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for $2.99 for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at Captain Video. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.